Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Andre Darmanin uh, from Global Conversations once again coming to you uh, on another topic. And, uh, and today's topic is going to be on conscious inclusion. Uh, so let's start off the topic a little bit uh, in terms of what, you know, what is what is conscious inclusion and whatnot. So, you know, according to Brittany Critchlow, it's estimated that our brains unconsciously process 11 million pieces of information per second. Now compare that to the 40 pieces per second that it processes consciously. Our brains, more specifically the amygdala, must process and categorize all the surrounding information for survival purposes. Um, but due to our instincts and the inability to consciously process everything at all times, we react and make decisions based on information that was processed unconsciously. This can manifest into unconscious bias. Um, and there are various forms of this that creep into our personal professional lives, such as gender bias, halo, confirmation bias, etc. So one of the things I've, I've said in the, in the, you know, in my previous podcasts, uh, my webcasts, and also on LinkedIn, I've talked about the, 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 the problems with unconscious bias training in that there is no, you know, it's, it's an effective because behaviors tend to not change and then outcomes are minimal. But then we have conscious inclusion. My guest, Gamil Yafai, founder and CEO of Diversity Marketplace, has spoken at great length about conscious inclusion. In our, in our conversation, we're going to be discussing this topic of this topic, intersectionality, and the recent discussions surrounding diversity fatigue and his thoughts about it. Gamil, thanks for joining me. Andre, uh, it is my pleasure. And thank you very much for uh, inviting me onto your show. It's phenomenal. And again, you know, a lot of some of the biggest challenges that we face in society around diversity and inclusion is the lack of visibility of it and, and the lack of good, solid practice, the lack of evidence and data. And we'll be talking about all of those things. However, shall I do a, a quick intro? And this may not be as quick as you think. No, no. You know what? Take all the time I will. I mean, look, we, we you know, how we got to know each other was actually starting, yeah. I think it was uh, over a year ago in the DI oh. Leaders Forum. Yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, and yeah, and then I heard one of your conversations uh, about DI. And, uh, and then we've been following each other on LinkedIn ever since, you know, liking each other's posts, commenting on other's posts, mm -hmm. um, you know, following each other on social media. And then when I put out the uh, put out the call for for some more guests, you automatically reach out to me and said, Andre, I'd like to be a, a guest on your show. So, um, so now here we are having this conversation, and uh, yeah, I would like to you know, given the fact that a lot of people from my previous iteration of this of this uh, webcast, the Urban Equity Chats, yeah. uh, were predominantly North American. Now mm -hmm. that I've gone over to to Europe and other parts of parts of the world to bring guests from other areas. People may not know who you are, but yeah. here we are. Here's your chance. Here's your opportunity. Tell the audience about who you are uh -huh. and and, uh, and your history. Okay, Andre. Once again, thank you very much. So, I'm I'm based in the UK. I was born in a lovely place called Birmingham, uh, not Alabama, but Birmingham, England. And um, so, I'm of mixed heritage, and I'm fourth generation mixed heritage. Um, so. My, my mother was born in a lovely place called Glasgow in Scotland. Her mother was born in Ireland and her mother's father was also born in Scotland. However, my mother's father was born in Hyderabad in India. 
Mm. And his father was born in Yemen. Um, my father is a full-blooded Yemeni. And um, so I have a mix of, you could say, English, Irish, Scottish, uh, Indian and Yemen um, you know, ancestry. But also what that's done is, and we'll talk more about intersectionality, but I'll give you some idea of my intersectionality. So in England, where I spent most of my time with my dad, I spoke, you could say, I spoke English, but I was seen as Muslim. When I was in Scotland, I was seen as a Protestant, a, a Christian, because my mother was Christian. And, and the combination of you know, that mixed heritage, that Muslim versus Christian, and being seen by different people in different lights. I'm six foot tall, and I went to Yemen when I was 12. And very few people are over six, well, over five foot eight in Yemen. So I stood out, you know, and plus the color of my skin in Yemen. You, know, you could say I, I probably experienced more discrimination in Yemen than I did in the UK. Um, mainly because of my accent, again, the language, the height. Um, oh, also, I'm dyslexic, which, you mm. know, which I didn't find out about. I mean, I've always known, but I didn't actually find out about until last week when I did my assessment. So, you know, and also I'm in my, I've just come into my 60s. So that also sort of has an impact in terms of age so the combination of gender age religion you know race um height accent language that's intersectionality you know every single one of us will have at least five elements of intersectionality in terms of we'll all have a gender we'll all have a, a race we'll all have a, a sexual orientation we will all have a religion or no religion and we will all have a you know a race so everybody has five elements. But again, I'll talk more about that later on. So as I said, I grew up in Birmingham, England. Um, my schooling wasn't brilliant because I couldn't read. So I was put in a dunce class at eight. I started getting into trouble. By the age of tw um, 12, my father decided that I needed to go to Yemen. Mm -hmm. So he told my mom that I'd, I'd go on a, a lovely six-week holiday to Yemen. Two and a half years later, I came back from Yemen. I hadn't seen my mom for two and a half years. My dad stayed with me for six months, then came back. And but if you read the the books of other kids that went were left in Yemen, they are horror stories. Mine, mine was just an adventure, and partially because of my makeup and and who I am, and I loved it. But I managed to get a job and moving into to careers, I've spent 15 years in advertising before getting involved in diversity and inclusion. Um, in 2000, I was fortunate enough to do some work with the, um, the Commission for Racial Equality in the UK when we started to introduce the amendments to the Race Relations Act. And that really started off things like positive action. You'd call it affirmative action in uh, you know, in North America, but in the UK, we call it positive action. And, you know, positive action is different from positive discrimination. 
positive action is leveling the playing field to enable others to operate at a similar level. And that's about training, development, mentoring, coaching, and all of those different things. Um, so in 2000, I got headhunted by um, a recruitment advertising organization called Havas. I spent nine and a half years heading up diversity practice, working on the inside of organizations. But these were branding, marketing, recruitment, advertising agencies. And, uh, you know, I would say 20% of my work was literally internal. 80% was revenue focused on what we could do with our clients to increase their representation, increase their levels of inclusion. And I set up Diversity Marketplace in 2005. And you could say we are now a team of diversity, equity, and inclusion analysts, researchers, auditors, um, you know, and um, trainers and facilitators. And I have a, a brilliant team that, you know, that do all the work for me. I don't mean that. I work bloody hard. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, and now we have more global clients than we have local clients. And, and just one thing to highlight, you know, we've got clients like Publicist Group in, in Dubai and Publicist Group owns Saatchi and Saatchi MSL Advertising. We've got um, clients in Iceland that manufacture um, machinery for gutting fish all over the world. And, and the likes of Yosushi and Bento, um, you know, Travel Bag, Travel Republic. We work with the Law Commission and many, many others. However, my favorite client at the moment, um, you can say I've got two. One is the VNA, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, where we're doing a lot of work with their senior leaders. But my favorite of favorite clients is a 20 piece choir in Manchester, England who recognize that they want to grow as a choir. And they, at the moment, they're all white voices. They want to diversify the voices. They want to diversify the music. And they want to diversify the audiences. You know, when small organizations like that start to pick up on the impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know that something's happening. And I talk about a ripple effect. And you know, just because somebody works in an organization and, and works on a diversity project doesn't mean that they don't take that knowledge and experience elsewhere with them, whether it's an, in a volunteer capacity, on a into a piece of charity work, or something that they do with their family. It's rippling. And we haven't seen the full benefit of it, but we will do. So there's a, okay, a not quite quick introduction. You look, you, you've got plenty of experience and the, the commonality about, uh, about all of us in this profession is that we started somewhere else. You know, yeah. um, doing uh, equity, diversity, inclusion work uh, is, is it's, it's a calling to a certain extent, but also at hmm. the same time, we come in with different skill sets. We all come in yeah. with different mindsets. And, uh, you know, for myself, as I've mentioned before, uh, in previous webcasts, you know, my urban planning background has allowed me to, to, uh, to get into this industry. Yours is marketing, right? So, so everyone has different perspectives on how they want to bring equity, diversity, inclusion into the workplace and into, and how do they make organizational change? And so moving on from that, 
Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, the whole premise of this of this uh, webcast is talking about conscious inclusion. Now, yeah. you know, as equity practitioners, we talk about inclusion itself. So in your words, what is conscious inclusion and how does that differentiate from inclusion as a general topic? Okay, it's literally moving from the talk in the talk to walking the walk. It's about being proactive. It's about making sure that we have the data, the research, that we have all of the things that we need in order to not just build a business case, but to know where the real challenges are. And one of the say one of the areas there is the fact that if you ask any organization where they are in terms of on the diversity and inclusion journey, 95% of them won't have a clue. And this isn't being disrespectful to organizations. It's impossible. I mean, I, I say I've been doing this 23 years. I know that much about diversity and inclusion. It's probably that much more than other people, but there's that much to know. <laughs> but I genuinely believe that everything we do is about simplicity. And you know, when you have data, so when you're consciously inclusive, you start looking for the evidence. You start looking for, you know. For example, if you did a list of men within an organization and a list of women and then a list of individuals with disabilities and a list of individuals from ethnic minority backgrounds in 90% of the organized, we, we've done massive, we've done about 44 pieces of research around this. And you will find that the, the white male will progress twice as fast as a white female three times faster than the the individual from an ethnic you know ethnically diverse community and four times faster than somebody with a disability mm -hmm. uh, and you know and that's a given this these are things that are actually happening but very few organizations capture the data and use the data when you've got that data you can focus on you know recruitment retention development progression because the biggest challenge that we have with our clients is convincing senior leaders that there's an issue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the easiest way is one to help them identify where they're at in terms of that maturity matrix in terms of their journey and there's a, a free way of doing that and that is by using the Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Benchmark. Mm -hmm. It's a free tool that you can download from the Center for Global Inclusion. And what it does is it's called a benchmark. However, it doesn't benchmark you against any other organization. What it does is it creates a benchmark for you in terms of a maturity matrix that will have five stages, so inactive, um, active, proactive, progressive, best practice. And when you've done all, when you've answered all the questions and you've provided evidence, it will pinpoint exactly where you are as an organization on that maturity matrix. That becomes your starting point. Most organizations really, you know, 
I talk about initiativitis, and I believe that for probably 20 of my 23 years, a lot of organizations had initiativitis, literally jumping from, let's say, unconscious bias training to reverse mentoring to you know, building a relationship with a mosque or a synagogue or a temple or with, with a certain community or doing a bit of work around social mobility rather than you know, looking at it holistically. Conscious inclusion is about having a structure. It's about having a system and making sure that you're, you know, that we focus on the whole organization, everything from your senior, not just your senior, you could say your board and then your exec and then your, you know, senior management, your middle management, your line managers, your staff, but also across different functions. And this is a project that we're doing at the moment with the BNA, and that is about around supporting function heads. So heads of marketing, heads of comms, heads of procurement, heads of IT, heads of HR, to write their own inclusion strategy. So they will focus on inclusive marketing, inclusive comms, inclusive uh, recruitment, and everything is done by the individuals with the expertise to do that, rather than just giving the whole job to a head of diversity and going, right, write me a strategy for the organization. Mm -hmm. So conscious inclusion is about having the right people doing the right things with the right information at the right time. And I'm so glad you're recording this because I'm literally just talking to you. <laughs> But, but look, this, you, this is what it is. No, but it but it is a lot of work. And I mean, oh. and, and you know, going back to your to to the point that you started, like, you know, we all know this much about inclusion, but there's this much to know. So, you know, really, is this is it teachable? And can equity oh, practitioners oh. teach this? Andre, the thing is, this isn't about doing lots of new things. Yeah. You know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's about good governance. It's about good business practice. So it's about filling in the gaps that we've already missed. So it's about doing things properly. And when I say that, it's about making sure that we we tweak what we're doing. For example, you know, part of being consciously inclusive is, is doing an impact assessment. How do you know that you're covering sort of every strand of diversity if you somebody's talking to you about you know, being anti-racist and what are you doing to be anti-racist so your focus is on race now you can't just focus on race because if you just focus on race as a topic you potentially are missing out on you know black women uh you know you're missing out on black individuals with disabilities or ethnic you know different ethnicities you know you're missing out on sexual orientation you're missing out on everything else so you cannot focus on just one strand and, and you know whether that's you know race or disability or sexual orientation or gender you know you cannot no organ when an organization says to me i i just want to focus on gender I say to them, so you're not interested in sort of men, you're not interested in white men, or, or you know, you're not interested, sorry, you're not interested in you know women from different ethnic minorities or women who have disabilities. And I go, of course we are. So 
you don't just want to focus on gender. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, a lot of people are confused by the language. We just need to make it clearer. We need to have more open conversations. And conscious inclusion is about making sure that, let's say, the right people with the right information doing the right things. Uh, and that's about making sure that within the organisation, because for many, many years, a head of diversity or a head of HR has taken on the, the whole role of diversity. And they've been producing the whole, you know, strategy and action plan and then deliverables whereas you know that needs to be spread and when you spread it to the right people it just means that the right people are tweaking what they do to be more inclusive and again that inclusive communication that inclusive marketing that inclusive procurement etc etc so you get the right people doing the right thing at the right time and making sure that they are inclusive in the process by doing you know, a form of impact assessment. And you'll know as well as I do, an impact assessment can be as simple as just having a list of words right through to having a document where you're looking at negative impact of, of you know, a new policy, a new practice, a new procedure. So there's, say, there's lots of different ways of making sure that you look at things through, not just an inclusive, an equitable lens. Yeah. Again, I can go on and on and on, but no, no, it's. I just want to commend you for for actually raising the uh, equity impact assessment because that's exactly one of the things I've been doing with uh, with an organization in terms of how do they how do they improve a business process based on the fact that you know we're just looking at it from from able bodied white male white female perspectives, but how are other other uh, ethnicities? and other genders and other and other abilities being impacted by this certain development, for instance, right? So, so, and this is something that that the organization has never heard of because of because of this. So this is why we need more people like you and I to be doing this work to make sure that we are be, you know, and we don't want to use inclusivity as or inclusion as a buzzword, but it's a reality. It's a fact. Right. So it's about embedding a process so that it becomes natural. We shouldn't be talking about inclusivity. We shouldn't be talking about diversity. But the the challenge that we have is when we introduce an initiative, and you know, and I'm going to be a bit controversial here in terms of employee resource groups. Now, I love... Go ahead, go ahead, because I'm probably the same boat as you, but go ahead. Okay. You see, the way that we're working with our clients now, and and again, I've been part of employee resource groups for 20-odd years, but most of them, when you you start to analyse the impact, a, a good proportion of them have very little impact in terms of progression of, you know, of representation of... You know, a, you know, a progression and development, etc. But you know, when I'm working with clients, we focus on a three-year um, ERG. So in terms of its life cycle, you create the employee resource group, but you give that employee resource. So for example, if you've got four employee resource groups covering different strands, you know, what you do is you pull out individuals to focus on an individual from each of those strands to focus on uh, representation. You pull out so a task and finish group, and literally you say this is how long you're going to exist for, 
And, and then you have a task and finish group on different areas, whether it's recruitment, retention, development, progression. But then you have the, either a representative from HR come in and support that task and finish group. Whatever area you need support, if it's around comms, you, know, you bring in an individual from comms to support that group. But it is a very tight ship in terms of turnaround. And you know, three years to me is, is the maximum you should have an ERG in its current form. Then it changes to a governance group. Right. So it starts to ensure almost a shadow group to say, okay, so we've done all of this work. We're starting to see movement from where we are to where we want to be. Yeah, now we want to make sure that you're going to continue to do that as leaders. Exactly. And then you know, they hold the senior leadership team to accountable. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Accountability. We can go on uh, on about this, and yeah. and uh, and you know, we have the conversations about ERGs. Um, you know, because it has to come. You have to look at the metrics, right? You have to look at the outcomes. Are, Always. Are they, are they going to be? Are the outcomes there, right? So, yeah. so these are the kind of things that that we need to continuously progress and learn from others and whatnot. So, yes. you know, I'm I'm one hundred percent with you on it. And um, but let's let's flip the focus a little bit and let's go to. Yeah something that we've we've uh we talked about at the outset talking about this you know the unconscious bias training uh where behaviors don't change and i think this this is a perfect no. launching off point from what where we started about the ergs so so how can conscious inclusion change those behaviors and have true outcomes for individuals especially no. those in uh global organizations for example but most organizations want quick wins and they want to do something and have an expectation that that whatever it is they do is going to change the mindset of somebody in their fifties or sixties, their seventy, you know, which isn't going to happen. You know, so we need to shift people away from this idea that you know unconscious bias training will actually change the organisation. No, it won't. It just gives a theory. The training is about the theory. You know, consciousness inclusion is about the next step. So you've had all this training around theory. You know that you've got bias. You know that you know, you've got biases. You know you've got blind spots. You know that there are th you know, you know that your dial on recruitment and representation isn't moving. So what are you going to do about it? And it's all about what you do when you get back into the workplace. And this is about having an action plan. Really, any good unconscious bias training should end with an action plan. And I mean a, a really good action plan. Mm -hmm. And the challenge that you have is you've got clients saying, yeah, I only want to give this two hours or I want to give this an hour or, you know, and then, you know, you need a minimum of half day literally to go through some of the theory. But, you know, it's not about going through all of the theory and loads of details. It's literally about going through the theory in terms of what people need to know in order to address the issues that the organizations are facing, and most of them are around recruitment, retention, development, progression. Those are four key areas for an organization in terms of how representative um, and the equity within all four of those. So it's about what happens afterwards. And that's about, you know, that's the next step. 
because it has to be seen as part of a journey. And then it's about monitoring, measuring and managing. But it has to be led by you know, an executive, somebody, a sponsor, and they have to really take it you know, intentionally. But you know, this isn't rocket science. This is, you know, does any training really work without implementing it when you get into the office? None of it does. You could say exactly the same for inclusive leadership, you know, training around banter, or let's talk about race, let's talk about disability. You can include all of those things. They work when we start to take that learning and apply it in the office. So you need that, that action plan to take with you back to the office, and then you need somebody to almost you know, hold you accountable against that action plan. So it is that simple. I know, I know that may sound very simple, but it is. Most, most individuals that come onto unconscious bias training do very little when they get back into the office. Yeah. The key is take it with you, do something, be conscious and be intentional. And that's what conscious inclusion is about. It's about being intentional with whatever it is you learn, you start to apply and then you start to monitor, measure and manage. If you can't monitor, measure and, and manage it, then it's not happening. And it, it is that clear. Yeah, it's almost like, it's almost like you have to follow the, each and every person who attended that session's journey to see yeah. if they've, you know, because yes, you go through these types of trainings, nine times out of 10, you don't operationalize it into the work that you do. Or on the, on the flip side, the person that you're reporting to just doesn't want to change it because they, they're not aware of it or they don't want to change it or, it's, or it goes against uh, a government or I should say government, it should be the organizational's uh, priorities, et cetera, et cetera. There's always an excuse mm -hmm. somewhere to not apply mm -hmm. it. So they're, like you said at the top, it's more about, you know, from the leadership right? That's the people who need to support the most and ensure that that message is throughout the organization. And that's yeah. where it is. And that's how unconscious bias training or any kind of training is operationalized, measured, and, and, and a successful outcome at the end happens, right? So, yep. Yeah. So, so now let's flip it. Let's flip it a little more here. I know, yeah. you know when we had our first conversation prior to, to recording this podcast or webcast, um, I brought up the term diversity fatigue, and I was and I was yeah. talking about this because I was listening to a po a, a podcast probably a couple of weeks earlier, prior to our conversation, and you know as we scour social media, as we scour LinkedIn, we start to see even people talking about this ad nauseum, and so you know, and then when you mention it, you said there's no such thing as diversity fatigue. This is just a made up <laughs> term, right? And 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 so so I know you you kind of we kind of talked about it. So, you know, I, I want to you know I want to dive into that conversation yeah. for everyone to know yeah. your thoughts about this this diversity yeah. fatigue, um, and and why is it even part of the conversation, and, and how can we deter the and and stop the noise about this diversity yeah. fatigue? I you know I, I would be curious to hear oh. more about oh. the conversation. Andre, we're not going to stop the noise about it. But what we need to do is find ways of overcoming it. And, and diversity fatigue, it's like anything. We, we, you know, any any change, and we're talking about a whole change, you know, process. This is transformation. And anybody that doesn't see diversity and inclusion as transformation, then they need to be doing something else. 
but it's a transformation and you get peaks and troughs and everything else but I, I, I can tell you now so many people don't even know what diversity equity and inclusion means mm -hmm. you know, so how can we have fatigue when the vast majority of the population don't really know what something is and how it impacts on them and this is this is the key really when you're working or when you're in an organization you want every single individual to be the best that they can be and every individual wants to be the best that they can be however you know, there are oh there's harassment bullying there's biases there's micro inequalities and so many different distractions that stop and prevent people from being the best that they can be you know, organizations when they get it right they create this what we call well an inclusive ecosystem one where everybody is supported by everybody else it becomes you know we talk about the term do we do we serve or are we served and you know inclusive leadership is about serving and it's not about, you know, it's not about people doing things for us. It's about us helping people to do things for themselves. Uh, and, and that has an impact on us as individuals. So, you know, when we talk about diversity fatigue, I don't even, I mean, we are that far on our journey into, you know, into the change needed for diversity equity and inclusion to actually be embedded so we're nowhere near where we need to be if you think about the term woke I'm just going to talk about that yes go right ahead you know think about the term woke now woke to me is literally a term that's being put out there by people that don't understand it that want to be disruptors now woke in its real term just means awakening mm -hmm. and we are awakening to you know, centuries of inequalities, centuries of indigenous groups being kicked off of their land and told that they can't speak their own language. You know, we have centuries and centuries of writing inequalities. And to me, woke is, is just the awakening. We're starting to wake up to the fact that all of these inequalities, and if we think about the workplace, particularly if you think about the workplace what you've got in the workplace is you have multiple cultures you know so many different cultures in the workplace however when you start talking to leaders they will start talking to you about an, an explicit culture within that organization and that explicit culture is how they see the organization every single leader will talk about the good stuff they will talk about, you know, in their annual general report, it's all brilliant. The website, you know, we are the best company to work for. You know, on the documentation that goes out or anything on LinkedIn, you never see anything negative. Now, sadly, what that does is it creates a bias within those individuals to say everything's really good. We are really, you know, they are, that they may even genuinely be really good people. However, <laughs> When you start to talk to individuals from different minoritized backgrounds, again, gender, disability, sexual orientation, race, religion, et cetera, they will experience what we call the hidden and shadow culture. 
And that's the real culture that they experience. And again, that's the areas where you find that people will not raise their head above the parapet because it's been knocked off so many times. They, they know it's best not to say anything because otherwise they'll be accused of being troublemakers. They will be the, the angry black woman that we hear about so mm -hmm. often and they get labeled. So it's much better to just get on and do your work rather than and this is where conscious inclusion is about going to all of those different groups and asking them what can we do better to improve you know how you work or to improve your experience of working here and whether that's somebody with a disability that holds, has autism dyslexia adhd dyslexia you know once and this is the key once you put into place reasonable adjustments for those individuals what you find is it changes their lives mm. and we can change lives so easily by just making adaption adaptions to somebody's laptop or desktop or their seat height it's incredible the small things that we can be doing that have an impact and if it makes people feel that it's changed their lives then they're going to have a much better work experience. So wokeism is that, you know, again, it's for individuals that want to try and disrupt this whole journey, but it's not going to happen. And, you know, if we think about the global, you know, we use the term, that there's a couple of terms that we use in terms of, we used to use BAME in the UK. Now, mm -hmm. some are starting to use the global majority. Some yeah. are starting to use just ethnically diverse mm -hmm. that's simple because we are mm -hmm. all ethnically diverse mm -hmm. and that way we're not differentiating between black and brown you know because at the moment there is a huge swing towards black and not enough swing towards brown mm -hmm. and you know and it's a conversation that very few people want to talk about but you've just got to look at you know the likes of just huge organizations that will have black development programs rather than ethnically diverse development programs mm -hmm. but yeah that's another topic but wokeism is again similar to diversity fatigue it's people that want to disrupt you know the journey and the equity that we really need across the board yeah no it's, <laughs> it's you know the you know, as we talked about, you know, long time ago, we were talking about, you know, civil rights and whatnot now, and that was yeah. a political movement. And now we have this political movement, and I use that in air quotes, because yeah. it's not really a political movement. It's just, it's just me, it's just noise from people from the right who, who are the anti-woke establishment and all that. So, I mean... Yeah. You know, we can go on about that that conversation well, in itself. And don't give them the don't it. give them the airtime. That's where exactly. I say. Exactly. So that's where it ends, right here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you know, as we were talking, as you know, there are so many different instances where you talked about in a roundabout way intersectionality, including even you know just your last point about having, you know, uh, black internship programs or or you know yeah. or you know or whatnot. But yet, there's other uh, minoritized or other racialized marginalized groups yeah. that that are that are not 
um, you know, that they're not included, if you will. There's that conscious inclusion again, because mm -hmm. of the fact that we're segregating people into certain groups. So Absolutely. be that as it may, at the outset of our conversation, we talked about intersectionality. And, you know, I want to close off our conversation in terms of in terms of that. And let me go back to my old profession of, you know, working in transportation, working in urban planning. Yeah. The road to inclusion is the intersection. And, you know, yeah. everyone has different abilities, different cultural differences in the global village. And coming full circle, we're actually approaching intersection in the sense that we're looking, we have to look for, for, for you know, for different people um, in their cars or looking at the intersection when we're trying to safely cross uh, across uh, the streets. And so we must be conscious of our surroundings. So it seems like that one of the major challenges of promoting uh, uh, cultural inclusion and conscious inclusion is the intersectionality um, and people experience the, uh, you know, different forms of marginalization differently. So, mm -hmm. uh, so coming full circle in terms of conscious inclusion, how can we address this, address intersectionality when it comes to promoting inclusivity in your mind? And, uh, and what are your thoughts on this? Okay, my first thoughts above everything else is just treat people as human beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, forget about every strand and just treat everybody you know, the way they need to be treated in order to get the best out of them. You know, we talk about kindness and kindness is so underrated. Kindness is just giving somebody a smile in the morning and you know, a member of staff that, let's say, I mean, if you're a senior manager and you smile at a member of staff that's having a bad day, you will have a huge impact on that individual. Now you will energize. And this is this is the difference between energizing individuals and de-energizing individuals. You know, a lot of the language that we use um, in our work to, in our work time is you know, can either energize and, and de-energize based on you know just a couple of words in a sentence. Um, but to me, it's about a number of things. So in terms of intersectionality, we're talking about one, being conscious of it to start off with. That's the first thing, because still so many individuals, and again, we are such a, a low level of understanding. So we need to understand what intersectionality is. We need to be able to differentiate. So we need to have data. We need to be able to look at things from an equity perspective, hence the equality impact assessments. And they are vital. But the most important thing is we need to have uncomfortable conversations. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, you know, when we start talking to people, when we start getting to know people better, that is when we learn more about. I mean, I've given you a whole list of the different intersectionality of, of me as one individual, you know, and there's masses and probably stuff that I don't even know that, you know, that I've not shared with you. But as soon as we get to know people, it's about creating trust. And you will have heard lots of conversations more recently around people asking uh, somebody where they're from. And that's the first question they ask. Mm -hmm. What, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> people that ask that question sometimes come at it from an, an, a really good sort of side of them but they don't think about the impact that it's going to have on the individual. However, I, you know, 
I've, I've used, and you know, I have my own way of working with individuals. And when I meet somebody for the first time, I will always say, tell me about yourself. Mm-hmm. My first question, always. And they will tell you as much as they think you want to know, because they know you're busy. They know that you may be in a senior position. They will tell you as much as you want to know. As soon as you ask the second question, the second question is always, and you do it with a smile, you go, now tell me a bit more. As soon as you ask that second question, what you've done is you're starting to build trust because they're starting to feel that you genuinely want to know about who they are. And the more information they release to you, the more questions you can ask them if they you know if they say they 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 run a, a, a sort of a workshop for kids in their local mosque on a Sunday. You can ask loads of questions around. You instantly know an awful lot. However, if you still feel you can go further, ask the third question, and that is now go a bit deeper. And I use those exact words, and I find out how many kids they've got. I find out how many times they've been married. I find yeah, you just find out loads about individuals we don't know and and this is the problem that we have in society we don't know even with our best friends we don't know enough about them Mm -hmm. and the key to all of this is not just have uncomfortable conversations because the only way to move an uncomfortable conversation to a comfortable conversation is to have it Mm -hmm. and have it loads so let's just get out there let's just Keep talking to people. Let's have an impact on their mental health. You know, people feel good when you ask them about themselves. We just don't do it enough. Yeah. So yeah. to me, that's one of the, the major um, cures is know your people, know your people, know your people. Right. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, you know, closing it off, it's more about, you know, like you said from the outset, being human, Right. Um, you know, we are, you know, especially in, in, in Western cultures, uh, a lot of times we pride ourselves in knowing what we do. Everything is based on a title of, of the job that you do. Yeah. But as leaders, you know, the responsibility should be, even if it's on a back, back of a business card or a piece of paper is finding out who they are as a person. And then as a leader, you find out specifically, you know, how they're doing, how's their mental health, how are their children, how are their families, et cetera, et cetera. Because that is where you build the trust, you build the relationship, mm-hmm. etc. So, you know, and it was great for you to reiterate that. And for people who are going to be listening and watching to this webcast, uh, that's where we need to go in terms of the work that we do is we need to be more humane in, in, in the work that we do and the way we carry on with our lives. So on that note, I want to thank you very much for your insight, your wisdom, your your knowledge, your history, like everything about you. And, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it carried on from our initial conversation and it carried on from the fact that I've gotten to know you as a, as a person. And this is exactly how I wanted to end off the conversation. So I really thank you for that. Um, and so, so with that, I want to leave, I want to leave on a couple of notes. Number one, tell us where to find you. And number two, uh, where I wanted to talk about at the beginning, but I want to go I wanted to end it for you to plug your your charity work. And so so with that, the floor is yours in ending this. Andre, firstly, thank you very much for the opportunity. To me, if I can share my knowledge, you know, in any way or, or form, I'm more than happy to do it. 
and you know, I have numerous uh, mental mentees and uh, coaches around the world that I love working with because all of that enhances my knowledge. And thank you for enhancing my knowledge as well. So you can find me. Uh, LinkedIn is the easiest, the most convenient way of engaging. Um, otherwise, I'm on Twitter. I'm the only Gamil Yafai on um, LinkedIn and Twitter. So I should be fairly easy to find. But in terms of charity work, every every year I do a either a 100K um, charity walk in 24 hours uh, and all the money goes to um, the Syrian, well, it goes to various charities, but one of the main ones is the Syrian and Turkish disaster. And what I've been doing recently is talks for organisations um, and the, you could say, the talk fee goes to those charities. But similar to this, we did a, um, we did a talk to 68 heads of diversity in Australia um, around about a month ago, and we raised over £650. You know, and, and again, that will go to uh, Save the Children. And again, it's always about working with reputable organisations in these countries so that we know where the money's going. And you know, food and safety uh, is so important, for the, particularly for the kids who are going to grow up scarred. And what we want them to do is grow up with as much help as possible. So there's loads of charity work, and every and this is a plug for the charity and voluntary sector. If you're not involved, get involved, because I promise you, I wake up every single day knowing that I'm going to make a difference. Thank you. Thank you, Cameo. And uh, that closes today's conversation. Uh, and uh, until next time, looking forward to speaking with a new guest. And Take care and have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.